0: Honor, uh, am I? I'm actually right, there. We go. All right, I've got, I've got everybody pinned. <laughs> Excuse the <coughs> Pardon the slow, slow technology here. Go ahead, Mr. Holly, for uh, for appellant.
1: Thank you, Your Honour. Andrew Holly, on behalf of uh, Andrew Redleaf, uh, and may it please the court: the issue in this case is the proper tax treatment of $120 million in ongoing payments, Andrew Redleaf made over five years to his ex-wife, Elizabeth Bradley. Everyone agrees that there are two elements of Code Sections 215 and 71 that must be satisfied for Andrew to take the the deductions. I'll address each in terms.
0: First, Andrew had... Can I ask a a preliminary question, or maybe it's deep in the argument, but the Hoover case in the Sixth Circuit, do you... uh, do you, do you argue that it's wrong or distinguishable? Uh,
1: Your Honor, I, I, I have to admit I don't recall the Hoover case. I don't believe it's critical to our analysis,
0: Your, Your, Your Honor. Uh, it's it's the one that explained the origin of the amendment of, of 70B1. Right. And, I think and, that, and, and, and went through the whole analysis that's the basis for all these briefs. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. I, I don't... Go, go ahead, if you're not from, if you didn't read it, okay.
1: Well, I, yeah, what I would say is I believe that Hoover's I don't believe Hoover is incorrect insofar as it talks about the fact that the purpose of the amendment
0: was to attempt... It talks about specifically the role of state law yes. vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis a determining object. the objective intent of the parties in the divorce agreement at issue. Anyway, and you know what I said. It 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 basically says um, that only you know you, you you have to you you have to find un unam- you have to find first the agreement's ambiguous. This as, as is as I read it, and then you have to find that state law is unambiguous, un- unambiguously answers the ambiguity in the agreement. Now I don't think that's consistent with your argument. You're 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 you're. There, there, there are abutting, a if you will, Minnesota statutes here, um, and I don't think their interrelationship is unambiguous. So that it seems to me is problem for you under the Hoover analysis. So what I would say, Your Honor, is I think that the, the agreement,
1: uh, the question isn't whether the question we have to ask here is whether or not the obligation to make ongoing payments to Elizabeth would end if Elizabeth had died. And on that point, the the agreement says nothing. So I think that Hoover is correct insofar as if the agreement is unambiguous, that that Andrew's obligation to make the payments to Elizabeth uh, did not end, then that would end the analysis. But that's not where we are, because... The con- the contract is simply on- says nothing about it, so it's either it's at a minimum
0: ambiguous. So Hoover, I don't think, is a problem for us, Your Honor, and I think that the 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 well, you, to, to, you <laughs> just took you just took the uh, the front half of Uber. You didn't respond to what I said. Uber went on to say, if the agreement's ambiguous, the you state if if state law unambiguously solves the ambiguity, then you look to state law. Otherwise, the federal court parses out the agreement in, in, in normal contract interpretation methods. So first of all, Your Honor, we would all say- you're, rely- you're relying on a self-serving affidavit by your client and the, and the uh, Minnesota statute about termination on death of, of, uh, of uh, marital support. I will,
1: we would also relate to relying on the face of the contract, Your Honor. We, when we submit that state law is
0: unambiguous here, because it's... Wait, it wait, you say the agreement, you're relying on the agreement. Do you mean, it? Is it unambiguous? It's unambiguous
1: as to this particular point, Your Honor, as to whether or not, or I should say this, Your Honor, is it, it provides evidence that the first element of the test is satisfied that the Andrew's obligation to make ongoing payments to Elizabeth would end if Elizabeth had died. There's evidence in so the question here, first of all, I would submit that state law is unambiguous as to the with that question. That state law has a very clear, Minnesota has a very clear default rule that says that spousal maintenance, that payments from one spouse to another from future income for the support of the spouse ends if the recipient spouse dies. That's unambiguous. That's controlling. And we would submit that there's evidence in the record, the face of the contract, creates an inference at least, at a minimum, that those payments are going to be from future income and that they're for the support of Elizabeth. Andrew's affidavit, unrebutted, I might say, also speaks to that point. So I would suggest, Your Honor, that state law is unambiguous here, and that it clear that the statute, by its own operation, makes it clear that
0: Andrews... E- even, even though all the state judges who have looked at this, uh, admittedly in, in dicta, dicta, have said to the contrary.
1: I don't think that's true, Your Honor. I don't think that's true. I think that there's, there's one state court trial judge who said that this looks like spousal maintenance to me, but this argument was never presented to that judge. The judge only had the agreement, and frankly, there was no incentive to do so. And in fact, that court refused to determine the taxability, the tax issues, that it's not for me to decide. So there's one line of dictum where the argument we have here wasn't presented, and the court made a throwaway line based on the language of the agreement. And let's get to the heart of the dispute here, Your Honor. What about the Court of Appeals ruling? The Court of Appeals didn't address whether or not it was a property settlement or not. It it cited the language of the agreement. And there's no question here, Your Honor, that the agreement uses the term property settlement. I'll address that in one second. Let me just deal with the Court of Appeals opinion first. The question for the Court of Appeals was whether or not the judgment could be altered. And that's it. There was no finding that it was a property settlement. There was no finding of spousal maintenance. It wasn't germane to that issue. Now, again, the Court of Appeals quoted the words property settlement. No question about it. And there's no question about the fact that this this, uh, separation agreement uses the term property settlement and that it waives spousal maintenance. No question about that. But under Minnesota law, that doesn't matter. And let me explain why. First of all, Minnesota courts, including the Rudd case and Peterson case, make make it clear that the party's characterization something doesn't control. And I'll just point the court to the analysis in the Stokel case. In that case, just like here, we had a payment where the parties was called, characterized the payment as a property settlement. The parties waived spousal maintenance. And the question before the court was, is this spousal maintenance or is it a property settlement? And the court didn't just say, hey, they called it a property settlement, so we're done here. Instead, what it said is we're going to look to whether or not the elements of the statute are satisfied, among other evidence. And because it, and that's exactly the analysis that should be done here the party's characterization can't control and it doesn't under Minnesota law and Elizabeth doesn't cite a single case where the party's words control and they can't not in Minnesota not
0: elsewhere and this is also uh, this, this loops back to my, my initial problem here because uh, now you're saying that a lot of a lot of interpretation, of Minnesota law is required, and it seems to me, uh, Congress, as at least as Hoover uh, interpreted the statute, said we don't we don't want to go there. We want to stick with the agreement. Well, uh, right. I, the way courts would 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 construe this agreement, I, the reference to the refer explicit reference to property settlement in an agreement surely where surely uh, rather experienced and, and clever lawyers were involved in choosing the language with full full understanding and and uh, appreciation of federal tax law those words have meaning you in, in, in the interpretation of the agreement by a federal court that's that's what pr- troubles me where where I, I don't see your argument uh, clearing that hurdle I understand your point, Your Honor.
1: I would point the court to the Hexham case out of the Seventh Circuit, Your Honor, where the, where the Seventh Circuit made it clear the met method of analysis. First, and I believe this is consistent with the Sixth Circuit, first, Your Honor, you look to whether or not the agreement has explicit language stating Andrew's obligation in this case, Andrew's obligation to make payments to Elizabeth ends if or, or continues if Elizabeth dies. If that, that, that question isn't answered on the face of the agreement, that's the first question you have. But if that question isn't answered on the face of the agreement, the next question then becomes whether or not state law answers that question. And and the Hexham case makes it clear that only if state law does not answer the question do you go to an overall analysis of the intent of the parties in the agreement. And that's what Hexham says. And that's what we believe the law to be here, Your Honor. And because the contract is silent about whether or not the agreement continues, uh, whether or not the obligation continues past Elizabeth's death, then the only question you have is whether or not state law, and the next question is whether or not state law answers it. And we submit that it does. And the statute,
0: there's no question at what state. What about, what about the term of the agreement This there shall be no alimony owing? Because, exactly- because the parties have equitably distributed the property.
1: That's exactly the situation that was in Stokel, Your Honor. And the court didn't rely on it. The court didn't settle on in
0: it. In what case? Stokel. Your Minnesota, your
1: Minnesota case? Yes, it's a Minnesota case. Court of Appeals. Stokel. And it's consistent, and it's also consistent, Your Honor, with the, the Wilkie case. It's not a, That's not a Minnesota case. It's in
0: unpub, Minnesota, in unpublished in a non, by a non-controlling court, right? It's unpublished, Your Honor, but it
1: relies on Minnesota law. It relies on the... Yes,
0: but this is not Minnesota law.
1: That's well,
0: the point. That's the issue. I
1: understand that, Your Honor, and I would submit that you only, you, you, state law does control unless the agreement unambiguously says otherwise. You don't go into a free-flowing analysis of okay, the... That's co- your argument. That's your argument. Yeah. That's not that's the
0: holding on. in Hoover. I,
1: I, I think that Hoover, what Hoover is saying is that the first step is to look at whether or not the agreement and, and it, it, it addresses this particular issue. And then I think if it doesn't, you look, and I think that's consistent with hexley And then if it doesn't, you look to the operation of state law. And, Your Honor, let's just be clear here. Let's consider the consequences. If the parties just could use the labels matter, if that just answered the question, Your Honor. If it did...
0: Counsel, can I, let me just read you from Hoover. Yes. Therefore, when state family law is ambiguous, the federal court will not engage in complex subjective inquiries under state law, rather the court will read the divorce instrument and make its own determination based on the language of the document. And, and now, I would, Do you agree with that legal standard?
1: Yes, I do, Your Honor. And I don't believe that state law, is unamb- state law unambiguously decides, unambiguously has a standard that needs to be addressed here. And the standard is clearly, it's a simple standard, and I just want to make the, the point I, I have about if the party's label is controlled, then there will be all sorts of mischief that could happen. All the party would have to do is they could have collusive agreements saying we're going to call this a property settlement and therefore, you know, ex-spouse, you don't have to pay tax on it. Even though, as here, the payment has every indicia, every indicia of what a spousal maintenance would be and we have affidavit testimony saying that's exactly what it is. And that, that kind of gamesmanship is the exact thing you're not supposed to allow here. And clearly the IRS, in a proper case, would never accept the party's characterization of something, when it nevertheless satisfied the conditions and terms of the state statute. So, I think with my remaining time here, Your Honor, I'm happy to answer other questions, of course, but I want to get to the second agreement, the second point, very quickly here. The second question is whether the agreement expressly precludes Andrew from taking the deduction. And the Seventh Circuit's decision of Richardson makes it clear that there must be a quote clear, explicit, and express direction, end quote, to that effect. Everyone agrees that there's no express statement in this in this uh in this the settlement agreement saying, Andrew, you can't deduct this, or saying, Elizabeth, you get this tax free. Instead, the court relied on uh the fact that they called it a property settlement. Again, we're not running away from that. But courts routinely recognize that just calling something a property sentiment isn't clear, isn't explicit, isn't direct. That's Baker and Neely. And said, you have to actually say something about the tax treatment you're offering. And, and in Golden, for example, the case that everyone relies on, they rely on, directly s- supports us. There, the question was whether or not the payment, the, the, the statement said that, the, the agreement said that the payment shall be accounted for in a manner so that no gain or loss should be recognized. And that's an express statement on what this, what the payment actually was characterized for tax purposes. The tax court, in fact, if you look at his order, it kind of betrays the fact that this is not expressed, not clear, and not not uh, explicit. Because the court said that it strongly suggested what the party's intent was and was an allusion to court rules about a property settlement. And, and that's just simply not enough, Your Honor. Um... That's not clear, that's not expressed. You have to make logical inferences. That's directly can consistent with Mealon and Baker. I have a little bit of time off, Your Honor. I'm happy to answer questions, but I'll reserve what I can. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, Mr. Dale, are you next?
2: I am, yes. For the I am, uh, yes, my name is Ivan Dale. I represent the Commissioner of Internal Revenue. May it please the court, uh, I am splitting time with the counsel for Elizabeth Redleaf, and so I will try to uh, um, hand over the virtual lectern with about eight minutes to go. Uh, Your Honour is correct that uh, Hoover and other cases uh, establish and explain, really, not, it's not that presidential, that the whole purpose behind the 1984-1986 amendments to the alimony statute was to avoid these kind of subjective inquiries into state law. I mean, a d- divorce is hard enough without having the IRS come in and ask, you know, well, what did you mean by this provision, what did you mean by that provision? Um, in this case, the the agreement unambiguously establishes that uh, the payments are not maintenance. No less than 19 times in the marriage termination agreement and a divorce decree does it, Describe this as a property division or an allocation of assets or similar language, and then it says specifically that Andrew shall pay no temporary or permanent spousal maintenance now or in the future. So that is unambiguous, and under uh, Minnesota law, the treatment of that unambiguously is that the uh, is the default rule which is that causes of action survive to the representatives of the estate. Um, Andrew wants to say that, well, in substance, it's something different than what the parties were calling it. In other words, they were representing the court one thing, but they really meant something else. And he wants to have a trial on that on the basis of a self-serving affidavit. But Hoover and also, you know, Lovejoy is a case out of the 10th Circuit. It does something similar. It says, you know, it, it held that uh, Section 71B1D was not satisfied where it was at best unclear whether state law would operate to terminate the payment. So it, re- it really required the the state operation of state law to be clear from the face of the instrument. Um, but, you know... I, I do want to respond to uh, the argument that the the agreement otherwise had every indicia of a of a uh, maintenance payment. Um, I, I would submit uh, the, the the exact opposite is true. Um, the The definition of maintenance under Minnesota law is an award of payments from the future income of one spouse for the support and maintenance of the other. Uh, There was no award from Andrew's future income. Uh, The parties agreed on a set of payments, but did not say it had to come from Andrew's future income, and the payments were so unrelated to income that the payments were due even if Andrew couldn't earn income due to disability. The payments were due even if Andrew died. The payments were due even when Andrew went back to the court and said, in 2009, due to the financial crisis, these payments are are going to be for this year six times what I'm going to earn an income this year. And the court said that didn't matter. And specifically, the Minnesota Court of Appeals said the property settlement in the MTA describing these payments is not discussed in terms of appellants' after tax income. So it, it's not a payment these aren't payments from future income, nor are they tied to any specific need of Elizabeth. And putting aside the fact that the payments totaled $140 million over five years, they varied from $750,000 up to a single lump sum payment of $30 million due on March 15, 2013. You know, it wasn't like Elizabeth's needs skyrocketed in March 2013 to require a $30 million lump sum payment. You know, they were so unrelated to need that if there was a change of control in Andrew's hedge fund, that the entire amount would be become immediately due. And if that weren't clear enough, the parties stipulated that Elizabeth is capable of self-support and, quote, has the ability to provide adequate self-support after considering the standard of living established during the marriage in all relevant circumstances. So the parties agreed that she was capable of supporting herself. And so it's clear that the payments were not for her support. Um, And if you look at the maintenance statute, the the circumstances under which the the Minnesota court even has the authority to order maintenance, um, the parties stipulated that neither one of those factual circumstances were present. So it's not that they just called you know, the payments, one thing, and they were really another. They stipulated that all of the factual circumstances, you know, necessary for awarding maintenance are not present here. Um, I do want to just briefly turn to the other element, uh, the other reason why uh, the tax court held that Andrew failed uh, to satisfy all four requirements, um, all four criteria of an alimony deduction, and that's the non-designation test. Um, the, the language of the, of the agreement is, you know, not only... Andrew's, Andrew is correct insofar as he says labeling something as a property settlement is not enough to satisfy this non-designation text. There has to be some reference to the tax consequences of it. But in this agreement, in addition to calling it uh, property settlement 19 times... Then, the agreement says, each party has been advised that there may be tax consequences to this agreement, and each party agrees not to take a position in any filing, report, or audit with a state or federal taxing authority that is inconsistent with this idea of an equitable division of jointly owned property. Well, taking an alimony deduction is inconsistent with treating this as an equitable division of jointly owned property. And the the provision even makes reference specifically to the basis rules in section 1041 of the code, which is the code section under which, quote, known gain or loss shall be recognized on a transfer of property incident incident to divorce. So in addition to the fact that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the agreement on its face and by operation of Minnesota law does not provide that the obligation terminates at death, the agreement... Provides enough uh, uh, of a designation that the uh, of, of the tax treatment, so that two of the four criteria are not satisfied. Um, and if the court doesn't have any other questions, I'll reserve the rest of the time for um, Mr. Kenworthy.
0: On the designation, counsel on the the citation of the Seventh Circuit. That does it. Does the Seventh Circuit talk about it as, as expressed as as argued? And if so, it was the Seventh Circuit wrong? Uh, this is the Hexam test. I, I guess. Yeah, the, the Hexam. Yeah, Hexum. Um, Unpub- unpublished opinion in 2018.
2: Yeah, I, my recollection, I, I, I don't have it in front of me, is that Hexam test essentially said that, um, you know, labeling something a property settlement was not enough. Um, I don't I don't know that it, it went much further than that, but again, I'm relying on my recollection. All
0: right.
3: That's that's fine.
2: Thank you, Your Honor.
3: Good morning, and may it please the Court? I'm yes. Ke- Kevin Kenworthy representing Elizabeth Redleaf here. If I could, I think I'll start off by continuing to address the designation argument just a bit more. As it has been observed, in order to establish that the payments here are deductible as alimony and taxable to Mrs. Redleaf, all four elements of Section 71 have to be met. One of those elements is that the parties have not designated the payments as something is non-deductible and not includable in income. The, the case law, including the state of Goldman, established that you do not have to parrot the statutory language. You don't have to reference Section 71 or Section 215. It's sufficient. if a common sense reading of the uh, divorce instrument is sufficient to acknowledge an understanding of the, of the tax treatment here. And as Mr. Daly has pointed out the um, MTA here contains language that makes it abundantly clear that the parties agreed that the tax treatment would be that of a non-taxable division of meritable property so so that that language is sufficient to meet the the designation test and therefore the payments can't be um, alimony deductible under Section 215 no matter how how the court resolves the other issues in the case. But turning back to the survival issue, um, the court is right. That In 1984, Congress sought to simplify and streamline the analysis so that that the law could be more administrable for the uh, Internal Revenue Service and for the courts considering these cases and to identify four objective criteria for determining whether payments are deductible as alimony. One that's another other issue that's in dispute is whether the payments would have survived Elizabeth's death, and as the Hoover case establishes, even there the courts are trying to hew closely to the divorce instrument rather than uh, falling into the trap of undertaking an extensive analysis of state law and considering uh, the intent of the parties, which was so vexing well, to the, to let the me,
0: uh, counsel. Let me ask you this: This was this was decided by the tax court on cross
3: motions for summary judgment. Is that right um, effectively your honor originally it was decided oh, on e- the basis of e- did either
0: party did either party submit by affidavit deposition or otherwise uh, any uh, uh, testimony or records from by the lawyers who negotiated the agreement
3: no your honor so um, on the designation issue, if I may proceed, um, uh, Mr. Redleaf would like the court to focus on one of statute under Minnesota law that provides that maintenance obligations as that term is used in Minnesota uh, do not survive the death of or remarriage of the recipient spouse and in that context, he wants the court to focus on the statutory definition of maintenance. But there are other highly relevant statutes here under Minnesota law. First is is, is provision uh, five hundred and eighteen five hundred and fifty-two, which specifically authorizes the parties to a divorce to agree to waive maintenance. That that requirement uh, that, that that statutory authority requires the parties to make certain uh, agreements and for the court to adopt those statements in a decree, and that has happened here. Namely, the parties agreed that they they had sufficient resources to provide self-support, that the waiver of maintenance was fair and equitable, and the parties stipulated that effect. The family court here adopted that stipulation in making the determination that neither spouse would receive um, maintenance in this case. In the face of that um, uh, conclusion, uh, I don't see how uh, Andrew can could, could proceed on uh, uh, to an issue, a uh, disputed issue of fact, even if the court were to credit his uncorroborated testimony that he intended the payments to be made from his future income. Full stop. That would be sufficient. There's nothing more for the court to decide. But beyond that, the, the tax court correctly found that in substance and in name, the payments provided under the marital determination agreement here were consistent with that of a property settlement. The payments you know,
0: courts don't make findings in summary judgment rulings.
3: Fair enough. Observe that, that there was not an issue of, of material fact, finding that the, the uh, concluding that the um, agreement was clear that these payments were in, in substance and in name, part of a property settlement, which would, under undisputed Minnesota law, survive the death of Mrs. Redleaf here. The payments were fixed. They were not conditioned upon um, his income. In the event that there was a change in control of the principal marital asset here, the obligation to make the payments would be accelerated rather than be paid over time. Uh, Mr. Redleaf also personally secured the the obligation to make these payments, all of which is consistent with the payments being considered a part of a property division. With that, uh, unless the court has further questions, I'll just leave it at that. Very good.
0: Mr. Fraser, we have some time? Yes,
1: Your Honor. Very quickly, Your Honor. Uh, It's not that, on the second point about the designation, it's not the Hexham case, it's the the Richardson case out of the Seventh Circuit, which is a public decision. But I want to get back to the point about, Your Honor's point about, uh, what, what federal law versus state law and i point the court to the Johannesson case 541 f3d 973 which says that well, the only way in which you look at federal law is to see whether or not the agreement expressly states that the obligation to make the payment ends at elizabeth's death you don't do a free-flowing analysis of the of the of the, of the state law and in fact which, in that,
0: which card said that again the ninth
1: circuit I mean I, may I speak past a couple points. I have a couple extra points. I'll be very short. All
0: right. Uh, So that's the Johannesburg... One one more point. Not both. And no no summation. Sure. Every point they've made about the Minnesota
1: statute is, is an attempt to argue facts. There's clearly evidence in the record stating that the elements of the statute were satisfied. And the district court, the tax court, didn't make a finding that this was a uh, spousal maintenance versus a property settlement, he refused to look at the evidence because of misinterpretation of the parole. That's article. repetitive, counsel. I'm, I'm, I, I thank you, Your Honor. Unless Your Honor has any questions,
0: I thank you for your time. Oh, I, I think the case has been thoroughly briefed and, and uh, well argued, t- and we'll take it under advisement.